Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. The Uber stopped and Miranda stepped out, extracting her H3 office, a business survival kit and a flat suitcase on wheels, complete with light, solar panels, a desk, and a sleeping bag. A memory, like a methane burp or a fracking earthquake, rolled through her. The mother and daughter she glimpsed at the airport, the brunette mom in the black trench coat, skinny jeans, sunglasses, white sneakers, and a Valentino butterfly camouflage tote bag, which retails for nearly $4,000. The daughter, a Surrey Cruz lookalike, dressed in a purple pilot jacket, skinny jeans, and pink boots. In her hands, she had a backpack that had a stuffed dog spilling out. Either one of them could have been me, thought Miranda. She had just quit her job at the fruit and vegetable prescription program created by Wholesome Wave, a nonprofit for obese, low income children, and dumped her boyfriend, Lucas, a Cards Against Humanity addict who practiced unironic taxidermy. Kion, what is that? It's my big novel, my systems novel, the one where I expose a world from which nature has been eliminated and replaced by messages and information whose intricate commodity network may be seen as the very prototype of a system of signs. What does that even mean? I'm not entirely sure. I I think I might have plagiarized it from somewhere. But the thing is, I'm just, you know, I'm drowning in cultural reference points here. But that's not fiction. Literature is more than just the transcribing of social details to paint... A convincing picture of the contemporary now. Greg, that is so... February. Everything is different today. So, what's the theme of your novel? Revillaging, uh, high-altitude workouts, and entitled longboarders. <laughs> what are those things? I have no idea. I'm basing the whole thing on the Washington Post in-out list. Maybe it'll make more sense once you hear this discussion of the new Jonathan Franzen novel. And now, taking time out from his latest project of rewriting the Dick and Jane books from a perspective of technological paranoia, Colin McEnroe. Actually, you'll find that later in the show. Who's really doing that? Maybe. Um, All right. Yeah, so we thought it might be good to take a book. This is an experiment. If it works, we'll do it with other books. Take a book, have a bunch of people read it, uh, and uh, hopefully some of you would read it too. But even those of you who didn't read the book, please don't turn away, and we're going to uh, have this conversation very inclusively. You will not feel like you are not part of the club. You won't feel like you've just shown up in the Bolivian jungle and you're the only girl there who doesn't really know what's going on and nobody will be your friend. Although that's a reference you would have gotten if you had actually read this book. However, um, the book is called Purity. It's by Jonathan Franzen. Uh, I'll tell you who's uh, here in the room. Uh, although uh, I should have asked you beforehand how all of you want to be identified now. Everybody's sort of – people are – as they would in their Franzen novel. People are changing all the time. But Rand Richards Cooper is very jet-lagged right now. Uh, he's, uh, he's also uh, the author of two uh, works of published fiction. He's a critic. He's a blogger uh, for Commonweal. Julia Pistel is like freelance everything now. Are you freel- – you're freelance everything now. I'm freelance right? everything. Is there anything in particular you'd like to emphasize? Um, well, I'm working on a secret project for this very radio station. Secret project, yeah. Um, and are you uh, available by TaskRabbit too? I mean, can people like you know? I have not signed up for that. That seems creepy to me. I'm old school. <laughs> 
I get <laughs> hired by various people to write stuff. So right. that's it's been good. great. Yeah, it's called being a freelancer. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> uh, and Alex Dubin. Alex Dubin, I'll let you explain uh, who you think you are. Who I am? Oh, God. Oh, wow. As opposed to who you actually well, actually, are. Both, <laughs> both, both Julia and Alex have uh, done internships here. Uh, but I've never, quite under, I've never quite understood your, your other role. Explain it to the world. My other role? Yeah. I am a freelance contributor to publications like uh, the Paris Review and the Rumpus and the Millions that's and good. the Believer and yeah, things good. places like that. Those are good things. All right. So um, lots of writers here, uh, all reading Jonathan Franzen. And um, so I, just just to sort of orient if those of you who haven't read the book yet, I'm actually going to read a quick summary from, of all things, uh, Rand's review of this for Commonweal. He says, Purity begins via a wildly complicated plot whose eponymous pro- protagonist is Purity Tyler, a.k.a. Pip, a young college grad at Loose Ends in Northern California. She's the only child of an eccentric and reclusive woman who will reveal nothing about her own past, including the identity of Pip's long-absconded father. This mystery ramifies significantly once Pip goes to work for Andreas Wolf, a former East German dissident who runs a WikiLeaks-like website based in Bolivia called The Sunlight Project. Wolf shares a past and a dark secret with the novel's third main character, a a journalist named Tom Aberrant, whom he met a quarter century ago in Berlin after the fall of the wall. These three characters are connected by invisible linkages. And when Pip volunteers for Wolf's organization, then subsequently, at Wolf's urging, joins Tom's online investigative journalism project, bit by bit, the underlying pattern is revealed. A web of machinations that entraps Pip and brings her, like her Dickensian namesake, steadily closer to her great expectations and astonishing secret of her origins. All right. So we're going to discuss this book. Oh, it was really hard to do that. To read that or to write that or to <laughs> well, what? To write it. Yes. I mean, imagine writing the book. The, the, <laughs> the plot was so hard to condense. You know, you write book reviews and you have to do that. Right. And and usually it's it's easier than that. <laughs> um, so obviously one of the things I'm talking about with this book is that plot. That plot. Maybe the thing – one place I'd like to begin, um, Alex, is um, – uh, writer Kurt, uh, Curtis Sittenfield uh, reviewing this for I think The Guardian says uh, just as it's impossible to watch a movie starring say Julia Roberts or Gwyneth Paltrow without ever losing awareness of their essential Julia Robertsness or Gwyneth Paltrowness, it's impossible to read this novel without its author's reputation looming on the periphery. I thought of Fransom himself particularly in the fascinating and poignant passages describing fame and how lonely it has made <laughs> Andreas. I don't know if I go over that, that last sentence there but I mean Franson as a novelist, is more of a celebrity, more of a person, more of a presence than almost anybody I could think of right now. And I, I, I don't know. Did you have that sense that you're always reading a Franzen novel? I think I did. I think it's hard not to, honestly, at this point. Um, I mean, especially after having written a few books, having opined as many times as he has, it's impossible to a certain degree to see that Franzen has a certain he has a certain number of concerns he has a certain number of recurring ideas recurring themes uh that play out um and that are often reflected in the interviews he gives 
and some of the comments he makes. But to me, Julia, to me, it's more than that. I feel this authorial voice from friends and that I, I don't associate. I mean, I would yeah. associate it with Tom Wolf and some other people. If, if I'm ever in any doubt about whether I'm feeling this authorial voice, he has little jokes in there, including a novelist character who talks about all the Jonathans who are writing novels. Yeah. Day, a plague of Jonathans, I think he says. But I just I feel Franson jostling me along, kind of grabbing my elbow and steering me and, and, and pushing me forward. Not in necessarily a bad way, but I'm, boy, am I aware of who that is. Oh, I totally agree. I mean, even if you haven't read his other work, and I'll put on the table I never read The Corrections, but I did read Freedom just to put in some context here. Um, you know, he became famous most famous by rejecting popular fame. So he's in this weird situation where he said, Oprah, you can't use my book for my book club. I'm too good for you. I won't do Oprah, whatever. And now now we know him as this figure who's authoritative and kind of snobby and puts out these huge books every few years for us to kind of dissect. Um, and yeah, his voice ve- feels very much just like Tom Wolfe. I totally agree. Um, like, this is what I'm trying now. Now I'm taking on the internet. Uh, <laughs> as he had taken on various, you know, the family and all that good stuff before. So yeah, I totally agree. You can't, or I at least could not come to this in a normal way of, ah, oh, I'm reading a book about a, a girl going on an adventure. No, that was never, never going to happen for me either. And so, you know, Rand, even though maybe I don't buy that last sentence by Sittenfeld, I think there is, you know, there's, there is a way in which this, this guy who is Julian Assange and yet not Julian Assange, and the way we know that is that Julian Assange, uh, as well as other real-life people like Michiko Kakutani and Marcus Wolf, uh, the East German spymaster, are mentioned uh, in this book. But uh, this guy who's a lot like, uh, like Assange, at one point there's a conversation – a couple of times, well, he's first accused by one of the other characters of, well, this project, it may have started out to be, be this thing of revealing government secrets and business secrets and things that journalists need to know. But it's really you now. You're the thing. And and he says it too, right? He has this keen awareness that he's the thing. And, and I, you know, I sort of understand maybe for the first time better why people write with noms de plume sometimes, that this is – it feels so much like a Franzen novel. I feel like I'm just being Franzened all the time. Well, I guess I'd separate out, separate out a couple of things in what um, we're saying here. <clears throat> there, there's the issue of an author's recognizable style. Mm-hmm. Um, we were talking beforehand and I, and I was um, <clears throat> thinking about the plot of, of this book and how complicated it is to sum up. And knowing – and I read this book – in, in August. So a few months have gone by. When a few more months go by and then a few years go by, there will come the point at which I will be unable to recite that plot or to remember even that much about what happens in the book. And a lot happens in this book. So what I'll remember will be a residuum of a few things. One will be the character of Andreas Wolf, probably for me because I lived in Germany and spent time in Berlin, so that has special relevance to me. But mostly what I'll remember is that, as you refer to, that Franzenness. So time erodes the hold that a book's particulars have on us and leaves us with the author herself or himself. Um, when we read a novel, we're spending time with that off with that author. So the, the first thing I'd separate out from what you're posing here, Colin, is the fact that we want an author's 
author, authorness. That's his or her authority. And we can identify what is it that makes Franzen Franzen. And, and I'd say a few things about that. There's another part of what you're talking about, though, and that has to do with an author's reputation, which is an interestingly constructed <laughs> artifact. And it's constructed by lots of people, including the author, him or herself, and the people who, who are putting the person's book out there and want to make money. Now, Franzen's career, his five novels, divides neatly into two into a sort of prelude in which he's Don and John the Friends, but nobody's ever heard of him. Um, in, in, in effect, he sort of had his pen name, you know, first when when he'd published two books that were well received and nobody read, and then he he despaired of where he was in his in his career. The first, we can talk about those first two books, but he 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 wrote. I mean, he's sort of the the fame is entirely a matter of his third book. And the fame is something he desperately wanted. And he wrote that essay in Harper's that we've talked about a little bit, which was in part this despairing complaint that nobody knows me. Nobody cares about me. And then this book, The Corrections, came out, made him hugely famous. And then, you know, since then, fame has been this terrible albatross. So there was this quick... I mean, the the issue of there's a through line in, in his career, not just in the books, but in his talking about his own books, in which fame is the subject, just as it is fame and status and celebrity for, for, for Tom Wolfe, but he sort of turns it around. I mean, the, 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 the issue of fame for him, but also in the characters of this book, really, its importance can't be overemphasized. Yeah, and I think that's really well put, and I think I can sum it up on, on my end by saying, I don't feel bad for you, Jonathan Franzen. So <laughs> you're... you're <laughs> Characters complaining about fame, you know, it's hard when when we have sensed his desperation as a cultural figure to be not only famous but famous in the right way, famous at the top of the pack, famous as an intellectual. And, and this stuff has kind of been held against him. And, and the whole Oprah flap um, didn't – I mean it helped him as, as, as you said, Julia. It helped him and it didn't help him. And the, mm-hmm. the cover of Time magazine where it's the, the, the next great American novelist or yeah. whatever that cover was. <laughs> and, right. then, and then sort of the, the – the, the playing out of his friendship with David Foster Wallace, a lot of he, you know, that's a friendship that was sort of written about the way people would write about jazz age novelists, you know, have being buddies or not buddies or whatever. There's there's a way in which his life ha- has become kind of a text that gets written about in a way that literary figures in America kind of don't. But you know, Alex, one thing we have, I don't, I don't I haven't even really found out from any of you except really from Rand because I read his review how you feel about this novel. We know, I know from reading Rand and from a lot of other reviewers that there's, there's an unrelieved darkness or cynicism about life that, that pervades this book. It's often a very, very funny book. At least I found it often to be very funny. I remember after reading The Corrections, um, there's a character in this book, her name's Colleen, who in, the, in this beautiful Bolivian jungle just suddenly says, you know, it's all crap. You know, life is crap. And, and the stuff that's getting leaked to us is crap. It's the crap stuff. That's why pe- what people want us to know. It's all crap. And at the end of the corrections, you have no doubt that life is crap. One of the last th- voices you meet is a talking turd, a talking piece of excrement where this poor man who's got a, a, a dementia occasioned by his Parkinson's disease is being you know, abused by a, a talking feces. If the, I don't, could feces be sing, singular? And I remember I got all the way. I got all the way to. I got through that fecal book. object. Fecal object. Yeah. Bolus. I, I, bolus. I walked out. I literally walked out into the suburban night. Uh, I was living in a little neighborhood in West Hartford, and I thought, really. My life is crap. It's I, I just had this incredible moment of th- being so 
just brought low by this You're vision. An epiphany. Just, yeah, yeah, just, just somebody just kneecapped me, you know, and I just, I'm so unhappy and my life doesn't really amount to anything. And so I don't know, does this book, uh, how, did, how did you read his view of this book? Well, it's interesting. I kept, I kept reading uh, Wolf as a Franzen stand-in in a lot of ways. It, in his dealings with fame, his complaints about the internet, um, it's very easy to see Wolf as, as Franzen in that sense. Um, taken as a whole, it's not a bad book, but it's it's not a great book. The plot is okay. Um, the prose is very good, except when it's not. There are a lot of <laughs> really strange, muddled moments. There's a scene early on where they're talking about where the author is talking about Pip's job and how it's she's not well suited for it, but it's a job that no one is well suited for. But the paragraph is so strange and backwards and in on itself, and it's a strange sentence any English teacher would tear apart and go, "What the hell are you trying to say?" Um, and I found honestly all the characters to be a bit thin. Mm-hmm. They're all white, well-off people. Um, Pip is a young woman who doesn't know what she wants to do with her life and has $130,000 in debt and doesn't know her father. And honestly, there's not much more to her character than that. I would like to address Pip for a second, as Please. long as we're on here. Uh, Professor, directly? I mean, you have something you want yes, to say to her. Pip. It's going to be uh, fine. Uh, <laughs> well, I just – I made a little list here because as I was reading it – and I mean, I think one of Francis' strengths is how the shifting perspectives and everything. So, you know, like in a way, kind of thank God we're not with her the whole time because, I mean, I – I think I was more charitable towards her than you are, Alex, and especially knowing going into this discussion, Pip is like I'm by far the closest to her own experience um, in terms of my age, gender, and some weird stuff I did when I was in New York. But (laughs) (laughs) to say nothing of your student loan debt. (laughs) Exactly. So, well, that's the thing. So, my feeling was like, Ugh, this just feels like friends and read every millennial think piece published in the last five years. I mean, listen to this list. Like, she's involved with Occupy Wall Street type people. She has student debt. Her parents are divorced, but her mom's her best friend. That's a super millennial thing. And she has so much casual sex, it's ridiculous. And it's like, um, I was so reminded by, of Tom Wolfe's I Am Charlotte Simmons and what a big deal that was that he was writing from this young female point of view. But, you know, it just – to put all those things together and create a character, it just didn't quite feel like real lived experience, especially when it came to the relationships. I mean everybody in this book has daddy issues, which is obvious from the second her name is Pip. But, you know, it's kind of – it felt to me like Franzen was saying like, hey, millennials have casual sex. Isn't that crazy? And then – but then that's still really emotionally important to her. So he like does it but doesn't get it. Um, and I don't want to reveal the end of the book but it's – there's a lot of meat cutes in it too. So, you Well, know. you know, let me just press you on this a little bit because yeah. – um, so what are the burdens, one of the many burdens that, that uh, Franzen bears is the accusation of misogyny, right? I mean that's yeah. – that comes around a lot. Now, sometimes it's because he's feuding with Jen Weiner in the press. Uh, sometimes it's because through really no fault of Franzen's own, you know, I mean he's, he's the guy who winds up on Time magazine whereas you, you, this book also reminded me 
quite a bit of, uh, at least in its structure and style, of Jennifer Egan's visit from the Goon Squad. Uh-huh. She doesn't wind up on the cover of Time magazine. Somehow, Franzen gets tagged with that somehow, though, that like he's this ascendant, privileged male himself. And, and, and I suppose even in rejecting Oprah, there's something like sort of rejecting what was, you know, predominantly a female television culture, too. So... I mean, there's probably a lot of pressure on him, whether he experiences it directly or not, to write convincing, persuasive, sympathetic female characters. And if Pip falls as flat as Alex thinks she does, uh, or if she's just the amalgam uh, of sort of, you know, millennial SAQs that you're (laughs) suggesting, that's not good news, right? (laughs) No, and I think when Franzen gets more into some of the other female characters in this book, he does a better job, and because it's not both gender and, like, a different generation, maybe. Um, But, I mean, I I don't feel she falls as as flat as Alex does, but, I mean, I agree with you. What's Franzen going to do? Not write about women? Of course he is. He always has. You know, that's that's one of the great things about his novels is there are lots of women in them. I think where misogyny could come up in this book is the sex scenes. And I, I read and kind of didn't realize that he's also notoriously mocked for his, like, bad sex writing. So, you know, I don't know how many young women he actually talked to <laughs> about their sexual encounters in researching this book. But it did feel that those were the scenes where I was like, OK, Franzen, get out of here. Like, there's, there's just he way too much. He needs to watch uh, Amy Schumer's new HBO special. Yes, uh, I think. exactly. <laughs> All right. Yeah, what are you going to say? I want to go back to your uh, initial launching point for, for this question. That is <clears throat> the feeling in reading Franzen that life is crap. <laughs> um, and and I want to I want to trace a little bit of an evolution in his in his uh, in that view of life that he over these last three novels. The, when I read the corrections, and I'd read one of Francis's first two novels, the Twenty Seventh City, which I don't remember very well, but it's a strange book about St. Louis in which the police force and city government are being secretly and insidiously taken over by Indians. Asian Indians. Um, so it was a book that on the face of it was absurd. It's, in its suggestions of sinister and absurd conspiracies, it was one of those systems novels that you were describing, Colin, more a la uh, DeLillo or, or Pynchon, Crying of Lot 49, strange and systemic uh, uh, conspirati- conspiratorial realities underlay our everyday lives and mock them in a way. When he changes gears with the corrections, he decides to sort of abandon all that and focus on intimate relationships in American families. It's going to be big novels, but his next two novels, The Corrections and Freedoms, um, are satirical and essentially comical, especially comic, especially in The Corrections, laying bare of such things as toxic sibling rivalries, parents who can never live up, marriages that are corrupted by infidelity, uh, crass, grasping venality, the desire for money, the eager betrayal of everything that's dear to you in order to get money and status. Now, that's all crap. That's the life that is crap. However, in The Corrections, you're in the presence of an author who's very much enjoying telling you how and showing you how crappy that is. In other words, the, 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 the Corrections is the novel where Friends is most Tom Wolfe-like in that a kind of merry malice 
animates the trouble that he gets his characters in. And a lot of it is really funny. I read The Corrections. I couldn't put that novel down. We were on a vacation. I was supposed to be hanging out with my family and friends. And it was one of those things where, oh, Rand's over, sitting over there reading his book. I read it like in, in 18 hours nonstop. Everyone hated me. Um, but I, I couldn't put it down. There are plenty of scenes in that novel. And I remember one. The family was called the, the Lamberts. And one of them, Chip, who's a professor, and he loses his job because of a sexual malfeasance, and he sold all his books, his library. He has no money. And he's in New York City, Manhattan. He goes into uh, an upscale food uh, deli and, and orders a piece of salmon, and it's cost, he sees it costs like $70. <laughs> so it's, it's sort of the absolute nadir for him, and he decides to slip it in his pants and steal it <laughs> and walk out of the store. So he's got this wrapped-up piece of salmon dripping juices, and it's in his pants. And just at that moment, he's accosted by a friend mm. who involves him in this interminable academic discussion. So meanwhile, friends and describes it as like, you know, the, the piece of salmon is worming like a slug down his leg. The, the, the book – and, you know, you're laughing hysterically. What happens progressively in each of these three novels is that his underlying take on human nature doesn't change. It's very bleak. But he moves from this sort of comic malice bit by bit to a much more really tragic view of the very same human shortcomings that, that – created this sense of merriment. Freedom is transitional. It's still essentially a comic novel, but it begins to be much more earnest. By the time we get to purity, Mm -hmm. he's really being quite diagnostic and in some ways therapeutic about the very same things that he was in a Tom Wolfe-like way comic about. So there's an interesting, and and, and I adjust my experience of Franzen-ness accordingly. We're all getting older and crabbier with him. Um, All right, we'll take a little break. We're going to go from Chip back to Pip after this. A book this nice Take my advice It's well worth any threat Of an overdue All right, so we're back. We're having a conversation uh, about Jonathan Franzen, his new novel, Purity. We'd love for you to be involved if you either read the novel or have a question about it or read another Franzen novel or read something by an author named Jonathan. Uh, 860-275-7266. 860-275-7266. Or you may tweet us uh, at WNPR. Colin, Jim Chapterlain's already tweeted, when is the movie coming out? I think that means he doesn't want to read this book. So... um, (laughs) Uh, our guests, well, actually, the easiest thing to say is they're all freelance writers. I just, I, I could have done that right at the beginning. So, Rand Richards Cooper uh, <laughs> and Julia Pastel and Alex Dubin. Uh, and so, Alex, you know, you said something in, uh, earlier that, that, as you know, because I was grumping about it before we went on the air, um, and I, I've kind of got this little bit of a hobby horse or bug up my butt or something uh, right now about this. And it's what I call the Nancy Meyerization of culture. You know, Nancy Meyer uh, writes, well, I, Wesley Morris referred to them recently as, I think, uh, bourgeois pornographic fantasies, uh, you know, uh, these things like it's complicated and something's got to give. And the people are always really wealthy and then they have the kind of funny problems. And I mean, that's not new. You know, Philadelphia story is, I guess, sort of the same kind of thing. But I see it more and more. And I feel like this is, you said, everybody's white and well off in this book. You know, I, I mean, for a panoramic novel, which is, I think, what this tries to be, and a novel that tries to be a take on the culture, you know, unlike something like by like Colin McCann's Let the Great World Spin, it's a pretty thin slice of the American, you know, soil sample. I didn't put that right, but you know what I mean. I, I know what you mean. And it does, I, I think there is a tendency in 
books right now that it focuses on a certain class. It, it focuses on middle upper middle class. It focuses on white people. Uh, people can, whom they presume are buying books, probably. People who they presume are buying books, but also, um, and I, I say this with, with love and affection for all the people, my friends and acquaintances who work in the book industry, but people like them. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, that is, a, is, I think, I don't think that's a secret, that that's a, a reflection of that. Um, but yeah, I, I think one someone like Jonathan Franzen can write a book about upper middle class and very wealthy white people, and it can be seen as a novel about America today, a novel about American culture, but it's really not. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, obviously this isn't a new thing. There have been yeah. – this this is has obvious and huge parallels to Great Expectations, Um but I'm struggling not to, like, give away some things. But, uh, you know, I think, like, the public tolerance for that is just sort of lessening, you know. Yeah. And we are saying, you know, like, this is another kind of fantasy novel. This is a fantasy where everyone is rich or secretly rich. And – or I'm saying it's a fantasy novel because I'm sad that I'm not one of those people, I guess. But, <laughs> you know, I like, I would read a novel, a great novel about a girl who – was in $130,000 of debt with no way out. I mean, that is a novel that people would want to read now. Um, not one with various, like, traditional deus ex machina kinds of things. Um, and I think we we had gotten onto the idea of, like, you know, oh, I'm sure this swirls around friends and all the time. It's like, where's the novel going? Is there a place for these big books? Yes, absolutely. But some of the other writers who are working in these huge huge novels now are women or they're not white. So Hanya Yanagahara's A Little Life is really popular this year. Donna Tartt um, basically also rewrote this exact same book, The Goldfinch, last year. <laughs> also Great Expectations. <laughs> and, you know, um, of course, Marlon James, as we talked about on a show a while ago, you know, those are all huge books taking on a lot of different things. But like the rich white guy perspective. <laughs> I feel like the public tolerance is just coming in for a landing on that. Well, yeah. And, it, it you know, I, I was thinking that if Dickens were writing today, he would have characters who had student debt. I mean, that that would be a plot device and he would understand it. He would understand how crippled it, that it was. A, it was a social form that could drive part of a narrative. But the difference is that Dickens also was keenly attuned to genuine poverty, too. You know, that mm-hmm. if you read Dickens, you realize that he's I mean, first of all, it's pretty hard to live in Victorian London and not be aware of poverty. But, you know, I mean, but that that's there in a very real and kind of gritty sense in a way that I don't see it here. Yeah. I mean, we never see her make a payment, right? Or like it never goes down. It's she, gets never other, like, she gets other people to make the payment. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But she's never like I was sitting in front of my computer. I made one $400 payment, <laughs> which is the reality for people who really are taking on that much debt. So, yeah. Do you have something else you wanted to say? Well, I think what what strikes me, you describe this book as as panoramic, um, but the book is also very claustrophobic, yes. um, and and that's unusual in a panoramic novel. This novel uh, crosses three continents, five decades. It has a plausibly large cast of characters, but really um, only three three and a half main characters. And um, one of the ways that Franzen is Franzen, this is true in all of these novels, they're very big. And he does this thing where he has, he has these um, uh, you know, three or four major plot lines and we'll spend 
he'll, he'll drive two characters to the point of some dramatic event that's going to happen. He'll leave it hanging there. And then he'll go off maybe back 20 years earlier in the life of another character and we'll stay there for 150 pages before we get back and pick up with the other one. And it's, it, it occurred to me it's sort of like watching TV shows now where between seasons it's such a long time that when you start the new season, you go, oh, God, what was going on in the show? I can't remember. Um, and and, and that, that's sort of um, an interesting and, and a little bit of annoying structural habit of France and narratively. But what strikes me, despite, despite these big arcs of time and place, this claustrophobia has to do with a certain emotional and psychological predicament that all the characters face. Um, and, and, and that has to do with this combination, and it's true of Pip, it's true of Wolf, it's even true of Tom, although he's sort of the, the most moral of the characters, this combination of grandiosity and insecurity, an envious obsession with fame, marital misery, really misery in all relationships that where erotic obsessions and, uh, and romance attempt to be combined, fraudulence and a sense of self-loathing, and, uh, and then an, an ever-resurgent contempt for anyone who's needy enough to love you. <laughs> um, and a, a, an almost evangelical dismissal of the possibility of what he calls disinterested love. This depressing nexus <laughs> of personal realities follows all characters and around in France and so consistently that it's like a plague. And where in the corrections, it was the same stuff, but – he was he he was laughed. Some, some witty uh, responder to or, or critic said in the corrections nobody's laughing except the reader, mm. um, and and this 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 complex is in all of Franzen's characters so pervasively that you can hardly help but end up feeling a certain ad hominem take on the writer himself, and because he seems to come closer and closer to giving us like a direct therapeutic access to this complex, we identify it over the course of these three novels ever more strongly with him personally, or, or at least I did. Well, I mean, I think also, Alex, that goes back to the the fact that in this book, it it's harder than it has been in the past to sort out the book from France. And I mean, even to the, I mean, the book is very self-regarding in that way, too, that, um, I mean, there is this character who is a minor character, but he's a, a thwarted novelist. And what he's really failed to do is write the big book. And, and there's a line in there where, in which, the, you know, on behalf of this novelist, he says, so he says, it's no longer enough to write, what was it, The Sun Also Rises or The Sound and the Fury. That, you, you know, that's, that's not enough to be great anymore. You have to do this other thing. You know, you have, to, you have to do this big book that's, you know, 700 pages and has this kind of narrative sweep and, and, and does span three continents and five decades. And, you know, I mean, you do feel at times friends and talking to himself and about himself and to us about himself in a way that at least, at least I did. I don't know. Yeah, and I think there is that kind of pressure. Um, well, it's a, and it's a pressure though that he feels and he has also placed upon himself. I mean, there are plenty of great writers, and we've talked about, we've already mentioned some of them just in the course of this, who don't necessarily write five hundred page books every five to ten years, uh, but who are exceptional. But that goes back to the anxiety I mean, that yeah, that, exactly. that, that Rand talks about in the characters. Am I great enough? Yeah, it, you know. But I think that point. I mean, Rand, I think raised two great points. One, all the characters are you can sort of di- are very diagnostic in the way he writes them. There's not 
they don't behave mysteriously. If you read the book, you can the, – the whys and the hows of their behavior are more or less explained. So, um, with, and, yeah, but also it's, it's a very claustrophobic book mm-hmm. in that sense also. It is about a handful of characters and it's trying to be big. Well, yeah. I take that back. I'm not sure how big it's trying to be. But it is very much around these characters and their concerns and their mm. – Well, I think that you know, writing a big book in length is a lot easier if you're writing about social or psychological issues. And when you're writing a, a very long book taking on the culture and particularly technological or internet culture – you know, that's really hard because you're going to sound lame and out of date, you know, by the time that book comes out in print, which I do think is a problem that happens with this book occasionally. Um, And it would be so much easier if he was putting out a shorter book in a shorter amount of time, you know, like I I was reading it last night. I was like, this is a book about WikiLeaks. Like, I'm so over WikiLeaks. But (laughs) I want to, you know, I think I'm the only person to read this book and not see it as primarily a take about on digital culture or Mm -hmm. online culture. To me, it's a lot of other things. I mean, yeah, there's a lot of online culture in this book. I I don't know. I'm always reminded of something that uh, David Pudlin, a former state legislator from New Britain and many other things besides, said one time when people were accusing him of being too interested in chili dogs. He said, I'm from New Britain. What else am I going to be interested in? He said, <laughs> I said, if I were from, he said, if I were from Florence, I'd know a lot about fountains. Um, and, and so like, at the, there's no way to write a contemporary novel with any sweep right now that doesn't have a lot of the internet in it. And, and, and I know that – I'm going to stay with you for a second, Julian. I know from reading Rand's review that he, you, Rand does very much see this as – I think most readers have seen this as a critique of online culture. To me, it's the other thing. It was that plague that Rand just described. That's what this book is about. It happens to take place in a digital world. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I, yeah, I understand that. I just feel like it spends – and this is kind of the big back to the big book problem and even what Rand is saying about 150 pages between chapters. It's so the length – and I have no problem with long books. But yes, it does feel like internet culture isn't the most important thing. But when you read 80 pages in a row about it, you do f- start to drift. You get drift away from your plot or your emotional um, situation. All right. We have to take a quick break. Uh, Ted from Niantic's called up. Ted, you'll be the first thing we deal with when we come back. We have much more to say and not enough time to say it. But it's a good feeling. I am the 20th century, said Dick. I am the virgin's hair whip and the cunningly detailed shackles of decadent passion, said Jane. I am every lonely railway station in every capital of Europe, said Puff. See Puff be lonely. Wow. It was a real inspiration to let Thomas Pinchon rewrite these Dick and Jane books. Today's show was produced by Colin McEnroe and me, Kyone Wolf. Greg Hill appeared in the intro and tweets for us at WNPR Colin. The part of Bill Curry was played by Mary Carr. For show pages, articles, and PDFs of the Faith Middleton Show staff's 700-page novel about bra, visit our website, wnpr.org slash Colin. On tomorrow's show, the artistry of Arthur Miller and the Connecticut murder case he tackled. And now, back to Colin. I read that broth novel. It's really about a lot more than just broth. I mean, that's the pretext is broth. But 
It really is about a lot of the same kinds of emptiness that we've been talking about here. All right. So uh, with us today, Ray and Richards Cooper, uh, all writers with us, uh, Julia Pastel with us, Alex Dubin with us. Uh, and if you en- you're enjoying this kind of a conversation, you could conceivably listen to Literary Disco, which is Julia Pastel's podcast uh, uh, about have – you, have, has your podcast tackled this book yet? We have not. Uh, we have not. So this is just kind of a warm-up for you. Just oh, yeah. I'm recording tosses. an episode tonight. All right. So um, – We got a call from Ted in Niantic. I should say we're talking about Jonathan Franzen and his novel, Purity. Hi, Ted. Hello. What's on your mind? Uh, I think I'd like to stick up for the novel a little bit. And I'm coming at it from the perspective of somebody who listens to the audio version. Um, I think that Pip's character, which may have come across as thinner in print uh, than it did uh, listening to the narration, the, the narrator did a pretty good job of putting a lot of nuances into the reading of it. Is the narrator anybody that we would know, or is it just sort of a... I can't remember her name, but she also was a narrator of the 4th of July Creek. Oh, yeah, that's uh, great. She was in, yeah. So I just think that um, if we are to enjoy novels, then maybe listening to them will help us perhaps take them a little bit... Uh, have fewer expectations of what we're going to get because uh, I do a lot of driving and I listen to it and it really all that length really helped me pass the time on the highway and I have to say that it wasn't as good as the corrections which I read the print version of but it was definitely worth listening to all right uh, also the streamable virtual virtual reality version is like a whole different experience too um, so I mean people I people can I mean no doubt you've heard commercials on podcasts now for whatever service it is that allows you to toggle back and forth between audible.com and the printed version and, and it keeps track of where you are so you can stop listening and start reading, stop reading and start listening and always know where you are. And it sort of speaks to it the It is way a good we, point though. I have listened to on tape um, – on tape. There's no tape. On my <laughs> iPod <laughs> – uh, uh, multi-voice novels and those always go off really well um, of having multiple narrators and literal physical different voices so yeah I think this would be a great um, book Book in the car he also is has a very good ear for dialogue not yeah. all writers do not even all mm-hmm. good writers do one of my favorite and to me most for me personally most formative writers John Updike had a really bad ear for dialogue and and um, and so I can imagine that Franzen's novel reads very well. There's one scene early on when one of Andres Wolf's um, confederates is sort of looking for for Pip and meets her and says says to her, "Ah, Pip, I've been looking for you for three days." But that's not what she says. Remember, she's a German person speaking English. She says, "Pip, I'm looking for you since three days ago," mm-hmm. and and I mean he gets that absolutely right. Um, he also gets, and I, I, I have to mention this, there's a scene where uh, we learn Andreas Wolf, when he's a student, was a poet, a university student, and he writes a, a dual poem, half of it in English and half in German. And it's actually an inverse acrostic poem. In an acrostic poem, the first letter of every line, if you take them together and read them straight down, make a message. And so what Wolf writes, of course, Franzen's writing it, in the German poem, the first, if you read all the first letters of every line in the German, it makes an English message. And in, in the English poem, if you read the first line, uh, first letter of every line, it makes a German message. And the message is a very raucous, sarcastic, bawdy slander of the East German 
government. And just to write that, I, I, I'm in awe of that poem. To write that poem, and I'm more or less bilingual in these languages, would take me probably three months of work just to figure it out. <laughs> it's, it's sheer linguistic genius. Although I, I also take Alex's point that the writing is good except when it's not. You know, and, and even the dialogue, there's there's this uh, a stretch of about four or five pages. Uh, I think it's in, down in the Bolivian section where characters keep saying, you're freaking me out. You're freaking me out. I'm thinking like use some other expression. You know, I mean, it's it sort of it, it, there are these you, we all all know. And Rand, I think, talked during the breaks about Franzen's own self mythologizing about this, you know, article that was written at the time of the corrections about how he would blindfold himself and put earplugs in and type in the dark. So nothing could sort of distract or wrongly stimulate him. So there's sort of all that idea of discipline. And there are places where this I like this novel probably better than almost anybody in the room. But. There are places where you feel like there's there's a sloppiness that's kind of surprising. There is, and I, I think that's. I mean, I think that's one of the things that's hard to read about this because it's it's impossible to dismiss this book. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it there's too much that is good and very good about the book, but then there are moments where you just kind of go, "Really? Did did you fall asleep, or did the editor, or both <laughs> of you?" If you want to read a very interesting review, the Irish novelist Colm Toybean wrote, and I I don't know if it was the Times or where it was, and he notes and he quotes at length. A terrible sentence that Franzen wrote. There's like a, a, a full paragraph in length. It's complete gobbledygook. And then Toybean ends up saying, you see, Franzen has purposely dismantled the show-offy style um, of, his, of his earlier novels in order to, to reach a far more sort of generic and meandering kind of prose that serves – and then he lists like three purposes that sound plausible. It's, it's a great bit of, of, of a reviewer taking what would seem to be a liability and alchemizing it into a, a gleaming asset. So one thing I'd just like to explore with all of you because I'm not sure we've quite said this yet and maybe we can't. Maybe that's why we haven't. But Julia – so we know that Franzen is positioning himself as this great moral censor. You know, this he has this critique right of the modern moment, uh, and as Rand has suggested, it's not quite as merry as it was two books ago. Um, it's it's a more serious, despairing critique. But what is the critique? <laughs> you know, what is it that he doesn't like so much? I mean, we haven't really said that. I don't know. I mean, I can't really answer that. I mean, it feels just like a general malaise Eeyore cloud hanging over every person, absolute hopelessness that, you know, the problems can't be solved, although there is a very sentimental ending to this book, um, which we mentioned when off air. So, yeah, I'm not sure. It feels more like an attitude than a critique to me, a perspective. Brian, do you think he has a specific... I mean, this book brings drags in. I mean, the the every critic feels the need to just come up with a laundry list of things that are dragged in here: the Occupy movement, online privacy, state surveillance, predatory banks, radical feminism, agribusiness. Uh, you know. So I, I'm in answering that. This is, book is probably the most apolitical, seemingly political book yes, that you're exactly. ever going oh, yeah. to read. Yeah. This yeah. this book, if we do, uh, uh, as Alex suggested that we might read Andreas Wolf as a sort of stand-in for Franzen without giving away what happens with Wolf in the end. Basically, he becomes so uh, vilely villainous that he really implodes in villainy and, and rage, uh, while Pip has uh, a, a, much, a, a much sunnier fate. And this complex or plague of, 
of um, of personal insecurities, this this inability to live without a constant reckoning of your position, either in the big world of fame or in the little world of relationships, where every moment people are trying to ascertain what is my status with you? Where do you think your status is with me? One of the narrowing, limiting, and claustrophobic factors of this seemingly large novel is that we are caught in that same trap of honestly narcissistic grandiosity slash insecurity again and again and again with with every character. So if you ask me, what is the critique? What is the book about? The gravity is back toward that same sinkhole again and again and again. And it leaves you finally feeling, it leaves me feeling, you know, despite all of my own horrible, you know, all my own life problem, middle-aged life problems, I'm, I'm better equipped for at least a chance at some kind of happiness. And so is almost everyone I know than these characters. And that fact puts, an, an, to me, a finally unbridgeable gulf between me and the entire friends and population. Mm. <laughs> Alex, you may get to have the last word on this, depending on how long you go. Depen- <laughs> oh, okay. Well, I kept, well, I, I think I mentioned before, I kept thinking of Thomas Pynchon's novel Vineland. Mm. Um, and we've brought up Pynchon before, but Vineland is a novel um, which was written in the 80s, which is about a young woman who doesn't know her mother, um, it involves two father figures. Uh, it involves a repressive authoritarian government, in this case the Reagan administration. Um, and it was actually trying to be a very political book about society and culture and about shifts over decades. Um, and I don't know if that was intentional. It was a very weird echo. Um, but in Pynchon, I do get this this apocalyptic terror of the 20th century. Um, and in Franzen, I get depressing and things aren't good and uh, it's, it, it can be really dark, but it's not on the same level or scale. And I think that notion of politics is key. So to marry what you two are saying is Pynchon is everything is horrible. And Rand's is just everyone is horrible. horrible. Yeah, <laughs> and I, th- I think also with Pynchon, you know, you better go run and hide. And with Franzen, you can't hide. The virus is already in you. All right. On that uplifting note, we have to stop. If you like this or didn't like this, email me, Colin, C-O-L-I-N at WNPR.org. Let us know which book we should do next if you think we should do another one. Somewhere I have gladly marinated these chicken breasts, frail and closed in Trinidadian spice, in boiling gestures this borscht, which I cannot touch because it is too near, has its silence. Okay, using E.E. E. Cummings is not the most effective way to write a recipe.